Make sure you get one of these handouts. We will not be going over every word on all 17 pages. But I wanted to give it to you like this so you could actually take it and look at it for yourself as well. But we will be highlighting a number of things in this. And as promised, it won't just be teaching, but there will be, at the end, we'll have time to break up and talk about some questions, okay? And I think they'll be very practical, but also some, you know, a little bit of theoretical questions so that you can get to the practical and actually and make sense of the practical. So think deeply on some of the theory of it as well. All right. All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to go ahead and dive right in, okay? So we um, make the best use of our time here. All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for today. Thank you for your faithfulness in every way. Thank you that we are able to be here tonight. Thank you that you brought us through another day, and thank you for providing all things uh, for us in our lives, all the things we need. We lay our burdens at your feet. We thank you for the cross. Thank you for the shed blood of Christ. And thank you for the word. Thank you that we get to talk about the word of God, your word tonight. And we pray that you would not just give us knowledge, but that we would be able to, to engage moment by moment and daily in your word, to trust you, to, to speak and to, to lead and guide and protect and provide all for your glory. And we just commit this time to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there's a, a packet here that you'll have, and there'll be one of these every, every time we meet. There's going to be seven of these, and they're pretty standalone, okay? They're not one built upon the other. So if, if you go to this one, and let's say you miss the next one, and you go to the third one, you're not going to be missing anything but the topic you missed, okay? And I did give them a bit of a flow, though, okay? And so this, this class is called Forgotten Doctrines, and you might say, well, wait a minute, you know, I, I didn't forget these. Uh, I, I, did, I, I named it this because I think there are some really beautiful doctrines in, in the Bible that are often ignored or misunderstood or even twisted or even denied. And I'm going to ask you a question real quick. Where do you think the biggest attack on the Word of God comes from? Where do you think the biggest attack on the Word of God comes from? <clears throat> From the church. Actually, that's, that's what I was uh, going to lead you to. But, you know, um, seriously, we think sometimes like, oh, it, it comes from outside the church. But actually, the biggest attacks on the word of God have actually come from, from within the ranks of, of, of the professing church. And I like to say professing church because if someone professes faith in Christ, they may or may not be a believer. Okay? And we need to be clear about that. You need to believe the gospel. It's not just, oh, I'm a Christian. You know, like I've heard gospel presentations before that said, just trust Jesus. And there was no other info given. And unless you knew the gospel message, you would be at a loss to know what you were trusting Jesus for and who is the Jesus that you're trusting. But the biggest attacks have come, and I'm going to, near the end, there's a couple quotes I'm going to share that will are pretty jaw-dropping that are from professing believers about the Word of God. So, we're going to do seven sessions. Tonight is the authority of Scripture. And if you were at church on Sunday, how many of you were at church on Sunday? 
there's some of that info in here as well. And I, it's in print form that you'll be able to interact with. But there's a lot that wasn't in the sermon, obviously, because we're taking an hour and a half here tonight. And I knew that I would be preaching that on Sunday. Some of you might wonder, why did you break into your Romans sermon series to do that? And about three weeks ago, as I was explaining in Romans 8.17, how when it says, provided we suffer with him, I wanted to make sure that we were clear about who we is. And the fact that it's easy to go, well, that's me. You know, I'm gonna, uh, you know, we are very individualistic, you know, in terms of our American Christianity, aren't we? But the we there is a plural, and it's the church. And I, I, I use it as a sidelight for some reminding teaching on what is the nature of the church. It's a gathering of, of regenerate, you know, born-again believers who are uh, devoted to the word as, as one of the things. And under that, I put a, an acrostic, right, and that the word is, uh, any of you remember? Sacred. Sacred. Uh, okay, so um, it stands for sufficient, authoritative, clear, reliable, essential, and divine. Divinely decreed doctrine. So take three D's on that one. So I wanted to take some time last Sunday to address that because in the church we'll use these words, but we don't know what they mean sometimes. And we'll, oh, Scripture's sufficient. But we live in such a way where... We're not really living with Scripture being sufficient. Or Scripture is authoritative. And so we are going to relook at some of these ideas of, of authority, inerrancy, infallibility, inspiration. The one we're going to go pretty deep on, though, tonight is clarity of Scripture. How clear Scripture is. And what does that mean? <coughs> we say the Scriptures are clear. And it's uh, perspicuity is the idea behind it. But don't be afraid of the, of the big word that none of us can pronounce very well, okay? Just a little uh, preview as well. We're going to look at God's providence and sovereignty in two weeks. Again, there's, there's some terms that we throw around a lot. Oh, God is sovereign, and, and he providentially orchestrated all this. But what does that really mean, and what does that really mean biblically and also in our lives? Then we're going to look on October 10th at election and reprobation. Now, election is one of my favorite Bible doctrines because it's very strong in Scripture. Reprobation is no one's favorite Bible doctrine because it's the flip side of election. It's those who aren't chosen. It's those who are chosen for destruction. Those who are not chosen for salvation. And so we're going to look at election, at reprobation. We're going to look at predestination. We're going to look at foreknowledge. And these are terms that are biblical terms that many, many Christians have twisted to mean something unbiblical. And I want to show you that the most biblical footing and the most biblical understanding of these doctrines leads to the fullest and most joyful Christian life and ministry. Okay, so there's, we're going to go with that. On, on October 24th, we're going to look at free will, and we're going to look at the will of man in salvation and the will of man in sanctification. And that will definitely be a uh, hot-button topic, and we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at all these biblically. What does the Bible say about these things? And then we'll look on, at the four, on the 14th of November at Divine Retribution. And then the last two are surprise topics, which means I'm still working on those. Okay? <laughs> All right. In fact, I wanted to say to you that if any of you want to suggest a topic to me offline, feel free to do so, and that might, be, that might become one of those two. Okay? So 
I'm really open to taking something and, and, and doing something that I wasn't thinking of doing, and, and if it's an interest level, we'll do it, okay? So let's dive into the authority of Scripture. We're going to include inspiration, which is a biblical word. We're going to look at two words that are not biblical words from straight out of the Bible, but they are biblical, biblically-based concepts. They explain biblical truth. So inerrancy and infallibility. We'll look at the sufficiency of Scripture, and then we'll end with the clarity and perspicuity of Scripture, and we'll take time to look over about seven or eight questions. Okay, and we'll probably break into groups of one to three people and, uh, and do that. I want you to be able to interact and not just take it in, but actually to, to kind of wrestle with some of these things. Okay, So that's where we're going to go. All right. So introduction a little bit here. There was a, a Pew Research Center report uh, that polled a growing group in America that are known as, quote-unquote, religious nuns. Have you heard people use this term before? Religious nuns, and the um, and nun is spelled this, this way, okay? Religious nuns, so not nuns that wear habits, okay? But religious nuns. In fact, I, I met the wife of a friend of mine recently who, uh, my friend's not a believer, and I've been sharing the gospel with him, and he owns a restaurant, and we went to his restaurant, and he said, well, my wife's going to be here this night. We're going to be able to meet my wife. And so we got to have our wives introduced. And, and the way he introduced me to his wife is, this is my buddy Mike who's trying to convert me every week that he's here. And the, what she said was, well, we're just a couple of unaffiliated nuns. We're nothings, basically, is what she was saying. She meant religiously, and they have a religi religious background. It's not Christianity, but they have a religious background. But they consider themselves uh, in this category. So uh, if, how many of you have heard this category? Yeah, religious nuns. So the group describes themselves as nothing in particular. That's how they would say it. We're nothing in particular when they ask to identify with a specific religious group. So the vast majority in this group are what would, they would have said, I used to be a Christian. Now, again, you can go into all the different theological ideas about what, that, what they're even saying and what, what, what that means, but they would call themselves ex-Christians, and most of them are under the age of 35. And so the Pew Research Center asked them, how, how is it that now you reject any religious affiliation? And they gave them six possible responses. And according to the report, the most, most religious nuns left because they question a lot of religious teaching. 51% agreed with that statement. Another one was they don't like the position churches take on social political issues, 46%. Uh, to a lesser extent, they said, I don't like religious organizations, I don't like religious leaders, and religion is irrelevant to me. So the writer, there's this article I read, and the writer said, well, you know, you might infer from reading that that Christians leave, that, that you know, people that would have called themselves Christians and said they're not anymore would leave the faith because they no longer agree with the teaching of the church or they just don't like the organization, they don't like the leaders. But the writer of the article says, um, and his name, the, the writer of the article is um, J. Warner Wallace, okay? And he says, this is not why young Christians are leaving the church. He says, one glaring statistic was largely overlooked in the latest data collected by the Pew Research Center. When they were asked to identify the most important reason for not affiliating, 
the largest response was none of the six responses they gave them as choices. They didn't allow respondents to give their own words. They just had to pick one of the six pre-programmed answers. And so this guy asks, so what is the real reason? And he says, well, the real reason lies in a 2016 poll that the same group did. And they let people answer in their own words back then. And the nuns said they no longer identified with religious groups because they no longer believed that it was true. They no longer believed that what they were being taught was true. And when they said why they didn't believe it, here's the answers. And you've heard all these answers. You've heard these. Well, my views of God have evolved. Um, others would say, I had a crisis of faith. And here's some specific. These are quotes from the respondents. Learning about evolution when I went away to college. Uh, religion is the opiate of the people. Heard that one before? <laughs> here's another one. Rational thought makes religion go out the window. Here's another one. Lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence of a creator. It slammed all the scientists in the room, right? Here's one. I just realized somewhere along the line I didn't really believe it. And then the last one, I'm doing a lot more learning, studying, and kind of making decisions myself rather than listening to someone else. So, you've got people who are walking away from their supposed Christian faith. And they will say, a lot of people who say, well, I'm, I'm an ex-Christian. Again, you don't even want to get into all the theological issues about that statement. But they will say that their religious beliefs that they were given are innately blind and unreasonable. And I just want to say that of the, the topics we're going to go over tonight and the following weeks, we are going to be given clear-eyed, eyes wide open, reasonable answers for what we believe. Because uh, the Christian faith is, is a thinking person's faith. Uh, it, it's not for people who you know, just, you know, checked their brains at the door and just blindly believe whatever they're told. Uh, you, the, the Bible can actually stand up to, to scrutiny. And if you think about the, the, the Old Testament, you take the psalmists and Psalm, 60, uh, Psalm 19, the, the design and fine-tuning of the universe demonstrates the existence of God. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Jesus appealed to eyewitness testimony, John 16, 8. Um, he, he appealed to indirect evidence of his miracles in John 10 to argue for the authority of his statements. Uh, there's something I'll share with you tonight that was just, actually, I, I just learned it actually this week. I have to be honest with you, I just learned it this week, and I'm like, why did I never see this before? And I, if, if I don't bring something up tonight where I said, hey, I just learned this this week, can someone please write it on their paper and say, ask Mike before the class is over, What's the thing you learned this week? Okay, will you do that for me? Because at this point right now, I'm hoping it's in my notes. Okay, and my notes are longer than your notes, and so I'm hoping that they're in the notes. So, uh, J. Warner Wallace uh, goes on. I'm going to go back to his article for a moment. He said, ex-Christians, again, do whatever you want with the term, they often leave the church because they don't think anyone in the church can answer their questions or make a case. I got a whole room for people that can make the case. 
It's time for believers, he says, to accept their responsibility to explain what Christianity proposes and why these propositions are true, especially when interacting with young people who have legitimate questions. Rather than embracing what they would think is a blind or unreasonable faith, Christians must develop an informed forensic faith that can stand up in the marketplace of ideas. And so let me just say that you might have thought, well, I'm going to come here and be equipped, you know, to be able to live in my life in a, in a more biblical manner. But what about turning a little bit of a corner with that and using it for ministry too and saying, I'm gonna, I want to be even more equipped to bless other people with what God has taught me from the word so that they also could understand that what we're dealing with here is absolute truth. Absolute truth. I wanted to take you, if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to go to... Um, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit here, but we're going to go to 1 John chapter 2 first. 1 John chapter 2, because if really, my premise tonight is true believers love God and believe his word. True believers love Jesus and believe his word. Okay, So you go to 1 John chapter 2, and he has just talked about not loving the world and things in the world. Verse 15, and he goes on, and then he says this in verse 18, Christian children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. There are many people that are against Christ. And then look at verse 19. Well, the end of verse 18, therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So the end of the times are coming. Verse 19, they went out from us. This is key. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And here's the thing. We probably all know people who say, you know, I've just left the faith. And it's not a thing where you just go, well, forget you. I'm never going to talk to you again. But if someone says, I don't believe in Jesus believe them and appeal to them as an unbeliever okay that's the only thing you can do john says they went out from us but they were not of us if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they are they all are not of us and it's, it's okay to be truthful as much as it hurts it's okay to be truthful I, i've known all, so many people so many friends and even family members it's like wow they they're they're saying they don't even believe this anymore I'm going to believe them on that. I've got to take their word for it. I've got friends that, that used to be pastors and missionaries that are saying they don't believe it anymore. And I appeal to them as unbelievers. I hope that they're more like Peter, where they're just wayward for a while and they're going to repent, but they haven't repented yet. But they might be like Judas, right? And they might be uh, false. And so you've got to appeal to them as, a, as an unbeliever. But the word of God is powerful. Martin Luther said, I did nothing. The word did it all. Huldrich Zwingli said, the foundation of our religion is the written word, the scriptures of God. Uh, J. Gresham Macon said, the reformation of the 16th century was founded upon the authority of the Bible, yet it set the world aflame. So I'm going to ask four questions each week, and it's what is the doctrine, what are the different views, what's the preferred view, and what difference does it make, okay? And we'll spend most of our time on what is the preferred view. This is an easy one when, you, when you're talking about the Word of God, okay? Now, when we get to election in a few weeks, 
or uh, in a month or so, and there's uh, within the Christian community you can have like all these options, right? This one, what's the doctrine? God's word is supreme over all other communication. It is from God, totally true, completely trustworthy, without error in its teachings, powerful to save. And I can speak very quickly because it's all written in your notes anyway, right? All right. Different views. You know, people are going to say all sorts of things. The Bible contains the word of God. You know, bits and pieces are in there. Uh, and, and so on. Man's interpretations really drive it. Uh, it changes with the times. It doesn't really mean what it says. It's just another book. And the Bible is the very word of God. We're going with the real answer, the right answer. The Bible is the very word of God, and we must obey it. Okay? Our, our consciences are bound by the scriptures. If I say something to you, let's say I say to Greg McNeil, my friend, I say, Greg, I need you to do something for me. I need you to wash my car every week for the rest of your life. Now, Greg has every opportunity to say yes to that. And to say no to it. He does not have to. What if I even said, Greg, you must. You must wash my car every day for the rest of your life. Every day. He's like, you're, you're crazy. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm going to move away. But when God says it, you have no out. You must do it. That means your conscience is bound by the word of God. So if, 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 if God says you've you got to forgive, you don't have an option on this one. Okay? So the authority of Scripture, we'll start with that. The authority means you, you must obey it, okay? You must obey the Word of God. It's, um, it's an anchor that holds. It's binding on your conscience. I'm going to bounce around through some of these ideas, okay? You think about this. God's leading us, right? He's leading us by the Holy Spirit. He's orchestrating things in our lives. Um, he's using the Word to direct us and guide us if we avail ourselves of the Word, um, have you ever known anyone who knows the word really well but doesn't live it very well? Anyone? Of course, right? You're, you're like, well, I look in that, that mirror every day and see that person. Well, you know, usually the people who say that about themselves usually live it pretty well. <laughs> Their friends would say, yeah, you live it pretty well. Um, but think about authority. Just think about this, and I mentioned this on Sunday, but anything you say that you think just because it happened to you isn't authoritative, Okay. Lots of cults and false teaching have been built upon people saying, hey, this happened to me, now everybody needs to have this experience, or everybody needs to believe this, okay? Your experience is not authoritative. You cannot build absolute truth upon your experience. You can't do it. Um, so the experience you have doesn't give you authority in the spiritual realm. Uh, the Bible is the only authoritative word, okay? Now again, your boss might say to you, um, I need you to do this, and you need to obey your boss, okay, as long as it's not, you know, illegal or immoral. Um, the, the governing authorities are going to ask you to do some things. Pay taxes. Drive within the speed limit and things like this, okay? And you're going to obey them because, because you know it's right. For a Christian, you've got a higher authority that says you should obey them. Uh, I've said this on Sunday, but my words in a sermon, my words in a Bible study are not authoritative. It's kind of like this. Um, think of your ribs, okay? You got ribs, and in between your ribs is meat and sinew and stuff, right? Okay? You know what I'm saying? You got the bones, and then you got the meat and the sinews and stuff in between, <coughs> all right? Um, the, the ribs are like the real deal there, and the stuff in between is holding it all together, okay? In a sermon, you've got God's word, and then you've got other words, okay? The other words, those are kind of support, but they are not the thing. 
All right. Uh, how many of you live in a house on a foundation? It's on a foundation, cement, you know, slab. That's the foundation of your house. Okay. It, your house is built upon that. Um, the walls of your house are not the foundation. Okay. It's built upon the foundation. The word of God has got to be the foundation. Only the word of God, applied by the Spirit of God, can save you, and can and can make you uh, sanctified, and can actually bring you can can actually um, get you to the point where you're actually persevering in your life. Okay, friends can encourage you. Friends should encourage you. But the Word of God, it doesn't mean that you can just go away and say, "I'm going to go live in the mountains and just just read my Bible on a hill." Okay. You need to be in community with people. And, and God uses all those things. But the word of God is the only authoritative word. The reason why is it's inspired, okay? Inspired. Now, Sunday, I, I briefly, briefly talked about inspiration and inerrancy and infallibility. I want to go a little deeper on that tonight. And I want to I open it up for a couple questions in the midst, okay? So let me talk about inspiration first. Theopneustos is the Greek word. It's breathed out by God, and it's all scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, breathed out by God. God breathed, given by inspiration of God, as he was using the minds and the words and the lives of men to produce his inspired word. The, the writers weren't, in, weren't inspired. The scripture was inspired. And, but when scripture speaks, God speaks. Now I want to take you to two places. Second Peter, chapter one, which is twenty and twenty-one, and then also um, we'll go there. We'll go there first. We'll just go there first. Second um, Peter one twenty. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, not human opinions, but the words of God. They wrote exactly what God wanted down. But when Scripture speaks, God speaks. Okay, go to Galatians. Galatians. And go to chapter 3 and verse 7. So, when we say, when, God's, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. Here's one of the places it's based upon. Know then it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, read verse read verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. It says the scriptures did that. Okay? The scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. But who said to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. God. Okay, that's an, it's an easy answer. Okay, We know God said that. But it says the scripture. So we say when, when, when scripture speaks, God speaks. Okay, uh, Someone will say, well, the scripture is just there, but God gives me messages. Okay, um, God says things to me. People will say that, right? This is shaky ground because what happens is that person who's saying that God is giving them messages often takes those messages as authoritative, meaning they're putting it up at the level or higher of Scripture. And all sorts of crazy things have, have, have been done under that understanding. Okay? And I have challenged, in fact, I've uh, challenged a friend of mine recently. I have a friend who really believes that God gives messages 
to people outside of Scripture. I said, here's what we're going to do. And in fact, I'd give it to any of you. If any of you say, no, 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 God gives messages outside of Scripture. Now, here's what you do. Just look in your Bible and get a journal or, you know, use your computer and write down every time you see that God is saying that he is going to do this as the normal experience in a Christian's life. Just find every time in Scripture. You can even find every time in Scripture that God does give a direct message to someone. Okay? Then you got to say, what about all the people he didn't give a direct message to? Are they somehow, you know, not as important in God's economy? What you'll find is, every time God was speaking directly to an individual, it wasn't, you know, for, for Tom to have a, a blessed life, but it was for God to work out his redemptive purposes using Tom as his instrument, okay? So God is using people, when he's giving these messages, uh, therefore, his redemptive purposes. But it's a good, it's, I would just challenge any of you, just, and I, and I you know, you know where I'm going to land on this, because I don't, I, I've, I've searched the scriptures, and I found, it's just like in the book of Acts, you're like, but the book of Acts, what did I say when we were preaching through the book of Acts? Remember what I said about, I said it over and over again, uh, Acts is descriptive not prescriptive meaning that the book of acts nowhere said nowhere do you see it saying now every christian needs to have this same experience because if that's the case then the things that weren't happening near the end of the book of acts that were happening at the beginning they would have been called out as being defective like hey the church isn't doing what the church is supposed to have because some of the signs and wonders weren't happening at the end of acts that happened at the beginning Okay, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. There are other places you can go as well, but I'm going to stop there and keep on moving. If that's a thing that interests you, I'd love to talk with you more online, offline about this, and you know, we can have a healthy dialogue and even debate about it if you'd like. Uh, but what I did say to my friend is, why don't you take your best shot at it, and I'll take my best shot at it, and we'll talk sometime. We have a date in October. We're going to get together and present you know, our findings to each other. So I think that's a a fair thing to do. So inspired, the Bible is inspired, okay? It means it comes from God, okay? It's God breathed, literally breathed out by God. So it's not the opinions of human writers, but it's the words of God. But you go, well, wait, all these people are saying that it is the opinions of of human writers. Who can I believe? Well, I'm going to believe God on this one. I'm not going to believe that guy down the block. I just, I just, you know, He's been wrong before. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to trust his opinion on that one. I'm going to believe what God says, you know, in the word about this. And, you know, God's work extended through the human authors to each section and each word of the original documents. Um, the process of inspiration, this is important. It doesn't make the biblical writers puppets or marionettes in the hands of God. Their books display differences of vocabulary, of style, and other variations between authors, okay? But the inspiration, we would say this, it overcame any tendency that they may have had to error with the result that the words they wrote down were precisely what God, the divine author, intended us to have. Now, I'm going to talk about the canon of Scripture in a moment, but I want to take a time out here and say, is there any questions that are on your mind? You're like, wait a minute. What about this? What about that? Any questions? And by the way, if you're like, I don't want to do it in front of the group, you can always email me or call me or talk to me after the class or whatever, too. But any questions that you might want to throw out?
Okay, keep moving then, okay? I'm going to keep moving. Sorry, I'm going to just go quickly here. So, um, here's the deal. The question of how books got to be in the Bible. It's called the canon of Scripture. Uh, the list of books that belong in the Bible. Now, how many books does the Catholic Bible have in it? So 72. 72 books. Uh, and how many does the Protestant Bible have in it? 66. 66. Okay. So you're like, well, wait a minute. Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, obviously, I think the 66 books is right and the other ones are wrong. Okay. And pretty much the historic Christian church, we're standing with the, the, the church throughout all the, the centuries, all the ages. Okay. Uh, I didn't, we just didn't make this up. The canon, the word canon comes from the Greek word canon. It means the, a measuring rod, a rule or a norm. And so the word Bible comes from the Greek word for, for, the, for the word book, biblos. And James White, he's got a good book called uh, Scripture Alone. In fact, I've got three books I would recommend. James White's book. James, James White wrote a book called Scripture Alone. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called Scripture Alone. You know that you, you can't copyright the title of a book. You could write a book called Gone with the Wind if you want, okay? It's just the way it goes. And then... Um, Matthew Barrett has a good book called God's Word Alone regarding the authority of Scripture, a really good treatment of, of the authority of Scripture. So, but James, James White said this, Canon originally meant a stick by which a measurement was made. It came to be known as a rule or standard and finally came to mean the authoritative list of something like books of Scripture. So the biblical canon is different than saying, it's much more than saying table of contents. Okay? God had to inspire a writing before it could be canonized, put on the list. The canon exists because God inspired some writings and not all writings. So it's known to man in fulfillment of God's promises and engaging in the action of inspiration so as to give his people a lamp for their feet and a light to their path. Meaning we believe that the, the canon of scripture was, in, was, was inspired by God to the people of God. So the Old Testament canon was settled by Jesus' time. By the time Jesus arrived on the scene, it was very clear to everyone what the Old Testament canon included. The New Testament canon is closed. We say it, the canon is closed. Okay, we're not adding books to the list. That's what it means. No new apostolic witness to the historical Christ can be given. No new revelation, as distinct from spirit-giving understanding of existing revelation that God gives. For example, when I was preaching, I don't know, was it was like a year... I can't remember when it was, on, on uh, how God speaks to us. I, I use the example of using a, a big, a capital S versus a little s, and that sometimes we use semantics, and we'll say, well, God speaks in the word. Someone will say, well, God spoke to my heart about something. Well, I might use the term, I, I stay away from saying that. I'll, I might use the term, God reminded me of something, or impressed on my heart some truth, or led me to Think this, so, you know, when you say speak, you're not meaning authoritative, right? When you're saying God spoke to my heart, you're using a figure of speech that makes sense to the human mind, but you're not saying that God gave new revelation uh, that is on par with Scripture, or even Junior. It's not Scripture Junior either, okay? So no new revelation is distinct from spirit-given understanding of existing revelation that God gives. The Spirit gives you understanding of the existing revelation. But it won't be given. Uh, no new revelation will be given. The canon was created by God's inspiration. The church's job was to figure out what God created, not come up with its own list. 
Now, this is some fun stuff. Jesus acknowledged the reliability of Scripture for all time permanently down to the smallest part of the written text. Go to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 19. And this is the thing I learned this week. It is in my notes. This is the thing I learned this week. Maybe I heard it once before, but I forgot it. Okay, first of all, you know how we say amen at the end of a prayer? All right? Say amen. What does it mean? So be it. Okay. Um, it, it, and, and literally it means certainly or yes. Okay. But we, so be it. That makes sense. You know, we're like Bud's praying or Carol's praying and I'm in a group with them and Carol prays something. I'm like, yes, amen. As she's praying and it's kind of throwing her off, but she's like, Mike's agreeing with my prayer. That's what it means. You're, you say amen to agree about really a spiritual thing, but sometimes you could say it, use it in a different term, right? Like UCLA is awesome, right, Chris Clark? A- amen. Can you hear me? Amen. It's that kind of thing. Um, That's not God-inspired. <laughs> <laughs> you got that. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. Here's what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, that's amen. Okay? Amen. Now, think. just pause for a moment and think about other things Jesus said. You know when he said, truly, truly, and then he would say something? Okay. He's saying, amen, amen. All right? So, so, stay with me here. So, it's a Hebrew word. Amen is a Hebrew word. But you find it in the, in, in the New Testament, right? It's a Hebrew word. And it's used in Judaism to strengthen or confirm an answer in agreement with another person's statement. Okay? So, you use it to strengthen or confirm an answer or an agreement with other, another person's statement. So, like when we're praying or we're praising, we're like, amen, yeah, I'm with you. So this is what we do, right? But Jesus didn't use amen to refer to someone else's words. He put them on his own words, okay? So he is giving strength and authority to what he says. You see what I'm, where I'm going with this? That was a new thought to me because I thought, oh, yeah, Jesus starting, starting the sentence with, with amen is cool enough. And when he says it twice, it's like really doubling down on it, okay? Amen, amen. You got to listen to this. Listen up. But he's putting the authority on it. Okay? He's putting God's authority on his words. Okay? So God the Son is putting God's authority on God's word. It just, to me, that's like a mind-blowing thing. I love it. I just, I, you know, I, and I, it just wasn't an idea that I had in my head. But here's what he said. Here's what Jesus said, okay? For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one yoda, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We're talking about, we're talking about the smallest letter or little part of a letter. Okay, so we're talking the inspiration goes all the way down to the actual words and the smallest letters and the little parts of the letter to seemingly insignificant parts. Jesus said, "Nothing will pass away from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, now this is why it's so important. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. There is a high cost for leading people astray. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this is the biggest statement of Jesus that, more, that, that clearly shows scriptures without error in its original form that God gave it, basically. It's, it's inspired it's without error. It's not, it stands forever. That's why when Jesus said in John 
Mark, Mark 10 or John 10, I can't remember. Uh, the scriptures cannot be broken. Was it Mark 10, 35 maybe? The scriptures cannot be broken. Okay, they're going to stand. Now here, let me say something else. Let me get a little time out here. There might be someone even here, but I've known people like this. And it's a scary thing if you ever think, oh no, what if I ever go there? Or you might even be going through this and it's a scary thing. If you ever start thinking, I don't know if the Bible's true. Okay? If you ever start thinking that, or maybe you're slipping and you go, oh no, I just don't know. I don't know if I can trust the Bible. I've, I've had a lot of friends that have gone through that kind of stuff. Some have come out, it's almost like they feel like they're taking a nosedive in an airplane. And then they kind of come out of the spiral and they start soaring again. But there's others that keep on going and go to a spot where they're just like, I don't believe that anymore. I never know what to do with that. You don't know what to do with it. We don't know. Only God knows where someone's heart is. But it really, it hurts deeply, doesn't it? it it's like really gives you a pit in the stomach, doesn't it? Where you're like, how did they lose that? Are they deceived right now? Are they confused right now? Are they angry right now? Pam. I'm glad you touched on that because when you were reading the previous verse, seemed like those that were with us, but then yes. left, they never were with us. Yes. And I'm speaking of this from a personal experience. I know I've shared it with you yes. before. Um, a person in my family who at one time did apparently have a salvation experience, but now she says she reads her Bible, but I'm not really sure that she, you know, believes anything anymore. And so I struggled with that. Of course, you know, pray for it and things like that. But, you know, I just, you know, that, that's, that's a scary place to be. It is a scary place to be. On the bulletin board of a church near us, and I think you know which one it is, it says, um, we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. We take the Bible seriously, but not literally. There's a, there's a, um, a permission to do whatever you want. Here's another chair right here. I think I want to chop. I think we're supposed to chop up our hands. That's 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 the Here's another chair right here. So they don't take it literally or seriously. Right. No, they don't take it uh, or authoritatively. If you're not going to take it seriously, you're certainly not going to take it literally. Right. Right. I had a high school friend that uh, we were in debate a few years ago on Facebook, and his response was. He had the wisdom and the intellect to be able to determine what parts of the Bible were true and what parts weren't. There you go. So what was he saying? He's God. Yeah. Right. When we put ourselves in the, in the um, authoritative seat and we say, you know, we've got the corner on the truth. Um, well, he could probably, he would probably retort that he's been given the spirit of God in order to interpret, in order to interpret it, we'd all sure. agree that he's full of it, but, yes. um, but why would you logically say he's full of it? Right. Um, yeah. why, would you, why would you say that? Since he would be like, oh, I have the spirit in order to interpret the scripture, but we'd say, ah, uh, you should actually do your research rather than just, right. take, just yeah. have your feeling. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I have found, too, uh, you never argue anyone into the kingdom of God, right? <laughs> you just kind of have to go, well, that's interesting, you know, and just wait for another day, right? Let's go to Romans 9.17. 
when we say Scripture speaks, God speaks, here's why we say it. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, again, remember what we, what we saw in, in Galatians 3. The Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham, and these were the words of God. God said what he said to Abraham in, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. So now you've got Scripture saying to Pharaoh. Let's see what the quote is. For this, Somebody read it. Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay, so the script, now who said that to Pharaoh in the Old Testament? Moses. Well, yeah, and God, God, God was saying this was what God said about, the, about Pharaoh. So script, God said it, but the New Testament is telling us that Scripture said it. Okay, this is why we say when... When Scripture speaks, God speaks, okay? And not just based on Galatians 3.8 and this, but this is, you see this over and over again where Scripture is not God, okay? God is God, but His Word is Him speaking. Um, let me give you another place. This is one of my favorites in all the Bible, but go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And hopefully you can... You can Follow along with me here. I'm going to go real quick on this, okay? So Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the promise of entering God's Sabbath rest, okay? His rest. And the good news went to people, but for some people, the message of the gospel didn't benefit them because it was not united by faith in those who listened, okay? So you hear the word, but like the air conditioning is on and the windows are open and it just goes out the window, all right? Then it says, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Hebrews 4.4. 4. He has said somewhere of the seventh day in this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he points a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice. Now, just think about that phrase for a moment. Today if you hear his voice. Now go up to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. <coughs> a rest for the people of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Okay? If you hear his voice, the key phrase. Then you look, go back to Hebrews 4, 7, today if you hear his voice. So there, 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 this is where we're going now. Now look at verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall but the same sort of disobedience. Disobedience to what? To what? The word and the voice, okay? The voice and the word, okay? God spoke, God said, and it says today if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, now look at verse 12. The word of God, for the word of God is living and active. We all know that verse, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now in my Bible, 
what I did when I one day when I was reading this, I took a blue highlighter and I highlighted today if you hear his voice and if you hear his voice and the word of God. Because the context drives you to the answer that the voice of God is the word of God. And he's talking about the written word of God. That's why, that's why over and over again, oh, I missed one. Hebrews 3.15, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, three times in this passage, it's quoted. And it, it's quoting the Old Testament. Okay, it's quoting um, Psalm 95. So that's why when we say this, when the scripture speaks, God speaks. Okay, and that's, um, I love Hebrews 4, how it shows this out because um, the only way you can't get there is if you cut and pasted a, a verse 12 out of it, out of the context. Okay, anyway. So um, one thing I want to say as an applicational point if God permits something, okay, he says it's good. If God prohibits something, when he says, don't do that, it's, it's bad for you, it doesn't make him hateful. Even though maybe the church who says that they don't take the Bible literally might think God's hateful at times because he says certain things that people don't like, right? But if God permits or prohibits something, it doesn't make him hateful. It shows him as loving and holy. It actually shows him as the most loving and holy above all. Then you get to where we land. If we disagree with, with God on these points, it doesn't make us more loving than him. It reveals us as rebellious or not trusting his wisdom and authority of scripture. Now, let's apply this to a lot of the social issues of our time. And I think you can see where this goes, okay? People will say, well, if you don't agree with this, you're hateful. If you don't agree with that, you're hateful. If you don't say that that's okay, you're, you're, you're unkind, or you're, you're bigoted, or you're, you're close-minded, or, you're, or you're, you know, um, you're pushing your ideas upon people. So we have to think about this when it comes to the Word of God. We're either going to, we're either going to um, reject it in the public square or accept. You can't, I don't think you can accept it in your personal life in your private life and reject it in the public square and be square with God. <laughs> I just don't see that as a, a, an option for us, okay? Jesus said, uh, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this generation, what did he say? I will also be, yeah, he, me and my words, okay? Me and my words. So if you feel like you're getting painted in a corner you can't get out of, you're feeling the way you should, okay? And what I mean by that, in the best possible way, we are hemmed in on all sides because our conscience is captive to the word of God. Now, that's the best freedom in the world. It is not, it's the best slavery in the world, too. Okay? This is good for us. People will tell you it's bad. All right? You always got to deal with the counterintuitive when it comes to living in the public square, living in an, un, un, an ungodly age. You have to deal with the, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, wait. People are telling me I'm wrong, but I know that this is right. I know the Bible is true. You know how the, you know you have to deal with this all the time? What if someone's telling you over and over again something untrue about yourself? You know, and you have to like fight with your with in your mind and go, no, no, that's not true about me. That's not true about me. You gotta do that with the word of God all the time now. And they had to do it back then, as far back as you want to go. You know what, Stephen? 
Well, sure. Right. It's been around a long time. Okay. It's been around a long time. Uh, Solomon had to deal with it as well. All right. Uh, cutting babies in half and things like this. You know, like uh, people saying, yeah. Anyway, you know the stories that have happened. David and all them. So, all right. Let's keep on moving. Um, one more thing I want to say about Jesus confirming the inspiration of Scripture and the authority of Scripture over and over. When Jesus referred, think about what Old Testament characters, uh, people, Jesus referred to in the New Testament. Just name them out. Jonah, Abraham, Moses, Solomon, David, Daniel, Abel, Lot, and more. Huh? Cain, uh, and Sodom, he, he, he referred to places. Every time he was doing that, he was confirming the inspiration and authority of Scripture. So you can't accept Jesus' authority and not accept Scripture's authority as well. People can't say, well, just give me Jesus and you can, you can have the Bible. Okay? You can't believe in Je be a follower of Jesus and reject the Bible. It, it's not humanly possible. Okay? No, it's not divinely possible. Excuse me. It is human. People do this. Stephen. That's one reason why uh, people, when they ask us, like, do you guys accept the Apocrypha? Well, did Jesus hide the Apocrypha? No. Did the Apostles hide the Apocrypha? No. Right. So we have the view of how did Jesus view the scriptures yes. and what he quoted. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, so, uh, good point. You have to keep in mind, be cognizant of what he spoke and what he, what he didn't refer to. It's very important. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about inerrancy. And I want to go deeper on this than I went on Sunday because this is confusing. Okay, these are not Bible words. Inerrancy and infallibility, not Bible words, but based on biblical truth. Okay? So inspiration is the Bible word. So inerrant means the Bible is 100% true and everything it affirms in its original manuscripts. And in case you're worried about your ESV or your NIV or your NASB and you're like, oh no, just realize that the gospel message doesn't change in a solid translation of the Bible. But there are some spurious translations. There are some weak translations. There are some translations that should be called commentaries, okay? And, and if you think about it, every English translation at some level has some commentary in there because the translators of, of that version had to come up with what word in English they were going to use, and they had five choices sometimes on a word. Okay, um, and I, I, I guess I'm going to do a little name dropping. Okay, this person would not remember me, but I remember him. Um, but ESV, there's some things. I, I switched to the ESV for preaching, I think, nine years ago. And I had read and preached from the NASB for years and years and years. And the reason I switched was because the ESV is a literal translation, word-for-word -word translation like the NASB. NIV is a phrase-for-phrase -phrase translation. Okay, so you take the NIV at the 8th grade reading level, you take the NASB at the 12th grade reading level, and I believe ESV is like at the 10th, 10th grade or 11th grade reading level, okay? Either way, the ESV and the NASB are literal translations, okay? NIV is a phrase-for-phrase, thought-for-thought, okay? Not word-for-word. -word. Keep that in mind for a moment. Sometimes NIV gets it right, sometimes NASB gets it right, sometimes ESV gets it right. Sometimes the translation on all those are like, wait a minute, how'd you get there? Okay? So there were some things I found in, uh, go to Acts. I'm taking you on a little bunny a rabbit trail, and uh, I'm just going to show you what I, what, I, 
what I was looking at uh, in Acts chapter 16. So I'm reading it, and I'm preaching through Acts, and I'm, I'm reading this. You know one of, the, one of my favorite verses is, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. The whole verse reads this way, though. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Okay? All right. Now, this is the Philippian jailer getting saved. Okay? You've got Paul and Silas. They're in the jail. They're singing hymns and praying. Right? And there was a big earthquake. You know the story, right? Okay? And the guy comes in, and he falls down before them and says, What must I do to be saved? And they say to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, if anyone has a, a Greek New Testament with them, they can correct me on this. But I just want to show you this. In the ESV 31, it says household. In 32, it says house. Okay? They spoke the word of God to him and to all who were in his house. 33 says he took them the same night of the hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family, okay? Verse 34, he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The Greek word for house is oikos, and uh, all these times, it's a derivative of oikos, okay? And in one verse, it's not even in it. Now, the NASB tells you because there's a little italic. In the NASB, if there's an italic, it means they're filling in the gap. It's not in the original Greek, okay? But in the context, this is what it, it would be saying. Who's got an NASB with them? Uh, just tell me what's in italics in those verses. Household. What verse? And very, and 33. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when I'm reading this, I knew that the ESV had some people on the translation committee that believed in infant baptism, Okay. We wouldn't hold, as a church, we don't hold the infant baptism. We don't, the Bible doesn't teach it. So guys like R.C. Sproul would have said, well, and he did say, he said, well, the Bible doesn't prohibit it, so we're going to go off of Scripture silence. We're going to say the Bible doesn't teach it, so we're not going to do that. Okay, makes sense? Okay. He says, we have, some people say we have freedom to do that, others say no. I'm reading this, and I'm like, why did they say he and all, having believed in God, he, he, uh, verse 34, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. And the NASB reads what? Mary and her household. Uh, you want me to read? Yeah, 30, 30, 30, 34. Okay. It says, uh, I'll start at um, 31. They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he baptized. Uh, he was baptized, he and his household. All his household. All his household, yeah, okay. Keep going. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Okay, so NASB says having believed in God with his, with his whole household because they all got baptized. Now, as a guy with a Baptist background, I'm like, yeah, they all got saved, and then they, they got baptized. This is, ba this is uh, you know, believer's baptism. Problem is, you read the ESV, and you're like, whoa, whoa. Um, they all got baptized, but he's the only one that believed in God? So I, I had to do some sleuthing on this, and I, I called uh, Leyland Riken, who was the literary editor of the ESV. He's, he was in uh, Wheaton, Illinois, or whatever, and talked to a grad, grad assistant or something, and 
He's like, yeah, it's a good, good question. You have to call Wayne Grudem in, at Phoenix Seminary. So I called Wayne Grudem at Phoenix Seminary, and I set up an appointment to talk to Wayne Grudem. And I thought, I, I must have emailed one of his grad assistants or whatever, and they're like, that's a good question. Mr. Grudem said, Dr. Grudem says, uh, he agrees with you on this. Because I said, I think they kind of bent that to, to, uh, to encapsulate the, inf- the, uh, the pedo-baptists, the infant baptizers. And, and, and they were he's like, yeah, he agrees with you on this. And uh, so anyway, he goes, we're going to look at this. We're going to take your question when they do the next final revision in the year 2016. So in the year 2016, I got a phone call with Grudem, and I asked him this question. And he goes, I totally agree with you. We got a footnote. We put a footnote in there for a variant reading. But he goes, yeah. And he goes, I, he goes off the record, yeah, you got a lot of people in the room. And they're all trying to figure out what they what word can be translated. He goes, you can be very assured that here, no translation principles were broken. But you can also be sure that people were kind of strongly suggesting which word they wanted in what order. Okay? Now, you look at that and you're like, it kind of bugs me. I don't know if it bugs you, but it kind of bugs me. You're like, what? what? But then you're like, wait a minute. What changes here? Does anything change here? Any, any meaning change here? Just, you know, someone might take it one way. We know when we get to, when we get to heaven or, you know, God's going to, you know, we'll know what, what was right or wrong in our Bible translations, okay? It just, it, some of that bugs me a little bit, but it's like, you know what? How often do we read a Bible verse and do the, so what does it mean to you, you know? And it's like, you know, I don't really, you don't want to know what it means to me. You want to know what it meant to God when he spoke it. The job of someone handling the scriptures is to work very, very hard and very, very diligently and precisely and find out what the original authorial intent was with a historical grammatical hermeneutic that basically takes it in context and looks at the real words. And you could actually get to the point where you're like, you know, I think the ESV didn't get that right. I'm going to go with the NASB on that one. You look at the original languages, and you're like, uh, I don't know how they went there. Anyway, well, Pam and then the, Kim. According to my translation, and this is uh, the New American Standard. 1995 or previous? Actually, this is, uh, came in 87. Okay, um, yeah. The previous, There's different years that they were done, and they did additions, and there were changes in words. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. Um, this one has a side note for verse uh, 34, and for uh, there's a, a footnote for... In verse 34, when it says, when it says he brought them into his house and set food, that means a table. And then number two, yeah, where it says, greatly having believed in God with his whole household, the side note says, or greatly with his whole household having believed in God. Yeah. So that, that says to me that he went back to his house and he shared with them and the whole household. Yeah, yeah. Well. Right, which is the way I would take it as well. But again, others are going to take it in a different way and say, well, he believed and he baptized his kids who hadn't professed faith in Christ yet. That's where I was trying to get to, is that people are going to take it that way. Because an ESV opened the door for it. Yeah. Mike. Oh, Kim, I'm sorry. No, wait, wait. wait. Uh, Mike, hold on. I, I'm sorry about that. I'm curious because you had said um, you switched ESV. Yeah. Oh, I didn't tell you why I did it. The reason why sometimes ESV is better, the reason I switched to ESV is because you look at the NIV and the ESV, that's the most Bibles are out there. NASB, Lockman Foundation, who I greatly respect, didn't get a lot of Bibles out there. And what happens is all of our young uh, elementary and high school and college students were getting the ESV. And because, I hate to put it this way, but Bibles get marketed. 
and you got you know 55 different kind of covers you can get on an ESV. Oh, same with the ESV. So I'm like, the literal translation that everybody's buying is the ESV, and because our young our young generations, I'm like, they're gonna grow up on this. And so it was hard for me to switch, but it was the NASB was just kind of going wasn't going to be used as much, and that's sad but true. And it had to do with their focus on how they were going to market things. I, yeah, I, in America. I, I used to sit in like seventy-seven. Seventy-seven. All right, yeah. Michael. Thank you for waiting patiently. Sorry about that, Kim. <laughs> years, yeah. year, years ago, I took classes at the Bible Institute, and mm -hmm. one of the things that they told us to do was always have three versions of yeah. the Bible in order when you're studying. Right. And so my fallback is King James. Okay. And yep. so um, King James, uh, verse 31, mm -hmm. and then I'll read verse 32. Okay. And they, and they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and all that were in his house. And then uh, they go on back about them all being baptized. Right, right. And I, I look on that as being more liberal than, than any of the other three versions. So therefore... Yeah. Yeah, if you look, like, NASB is more literal wooden translation. Like, they'll take literally, more often, they will take the order of the Greek sentence, which is kind of stilted. And in fact, when you read it for a long time, you start talking like that, right? You do get the vernacular of a Bible. Um, but it's, it's a wise thing. Now, on your phone, you could actually, you know, look at 96 versions if you'd like. And even in different languages, but it is good to do some checking. It you really know, when is. You, when you sit yeah. there and read the NIV, and you put the King James next to it. I swear, you can have entire passages, word for word, right. verbatim, the same. Sure, and you can. I, and that's yeah. one of the reasons why I just closed the NIV. I don't <laughs> use it anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, we're gonna keep moving. Okay, we're gonna talk inerrant right now. Thanks for going on that rabbit trail with me. That was that was all me. Uh, inerrant. Inerrant means the Bible is 100% true in everything it affirms in its original manuscripts. It is never wrong, contains no errors, completely correct. Scripture in the original manuscripts does not teach anything that is untrue. Titus 1-2 says God never lies. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. So inerrant means that something is without error. Um, John Frame, in his, uh, in his chapter, The Inerrancy of Scripture in, in the Doctrine of the Word of God, offers some important distinctions and clarifications on the doctrine. He points out that inerrancy suggests to many the idea of precision rather than its lexical meaning of mere truth. So he says a certain amount of precision is often required for truth, but that amount varies from one context to another. In mathematics and science, truth often requires considerable precision. If a student says that 6 plus 5 equals 10, he has not told the truth. He has committed an error. The scientist makes a measurement varying by 0 .0004 centimeter. What is that? a lot that's very small of actual length he may describe that as an error as in the phrase margin of error okay now infallibility okay means the bible will never mislead you it will never lie no possibility of error it doubles down on inerrancy it strengthens inerrancy in a way the bible always tells the truth about everything it talks about it's without falsehood never false will never mislead you so infallible if you think about it is a stronger word that it doesn't just mean it's without error, but it's incapable of error. So it's without error, and it is incapable of error. It's the, um, you could almost call it the impeccability of Scripture. <laughs> Stephen. How about, since we're talking about this, 
some rendering, some manuscripts say that Mark 16 shouldn't be in right, right, right. the Bible because not all texts, not all the oldest manuscripts hold that text. Same thing with yeah. the woman being stoned. Sure. And like someone like Daryl Bach or, um, or uh, what's his name, um, one of our most well-known uh, biblical scholars for Greek, I think is Daniel Wallace. Wallace. He says that that text shouldn't be in there, yeah, right. but it's in there. And even though yeah. it's one of the most beloved texts, not all the oldest manuscripts have it. Right. You'll notice this in the in the uh, footnotes of some of your Bibles. Uh, some of the oldest manuscripts don't have this. The biggest example is the end of chapter uh, 16 in Mark, verses 9 through 20. Okay, And you'll see a big double brackets. And it just says some manuscripts end the book with chapter 16, verse 8. Others include verses 9 through 20. And, you know, that's it. I don't know. Yeah. There's an answer to it. Give me. Okay, so the answer is this. Um, in that passage, when the woman is being stoned, it talks about primarily forgiveness. Right. Let's say we take that passage out. Do we lose sure. that yeah. Jesus forgives? Yeah. Same thing with um, Mark 16. The answer to that question is this. Do we lose all the essential or characteristics of Christ in other, the other passages? No, we don't. Right. So we can live without it, yeah. even though it's in our Bible. Right. That, that, I've heard that one, and that's, it makes a lot of sense. And the other, yeah, if you, if you take it out, there's no teaching that gets lost. Yeah. If you leave it in, it's kind of the same answer. Yeah. Tom? Isn't that just kind of the part where, in general, we have a very accurate idea of what the original manuscripts were but these mm -hmm. are there are very few areas where we're not sure what the original manuscript would have said so that's what very very said. few yeah daniel wallace is one of the foremost experts on on manuscripts in fact i have some pictures if you ever want to see them i got them in my office but they're um, pictures of some manuscript pictures that daniel wallace took uh in the holy land and it's uh they're they're really sweet but of they're big on foam core and they just got be some beautiful spot uh, shots um, anyway, uh, let's do this. I'm going to do this. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna jump ahead, okay? We're going to jump ahead through the notes. You can read all these notes about sufficiency, but to clarity and perspicuity, okay? Clarity and perspicuity. So that means that the Bible's clear, and everything necessary for salvation is clear in Scripture. So I want you to skip down to, there's a question I put in the notes, what if someone says that scripture is clear, therefore whatever view someone would get from just reading through the Bible is the view we should take? Okay? You know what I'm saying? Where's that question? Uh, somebody help me. Where's that question? Uh, page 10. It's on page 10. What if someone says that scripture is clear, therefore whatever view someone would get from just reading through the Bible is the view we should take? Okay, that's a slippery slope. You don't want to go there. You can come up with some really wacky ideas, okay? You can come up with some really wacky ideas. And so, uh, for example, so I've got three things here, three things here, and uh, Andrew McNeil and I worked on, on these three paragraphs, it, and it, they're really good to, to, uh, to point out. It's important to be clear that the doctrine of perspicuity clarity primarily refers to the clarity of the Bible on the major doctrines, especially those related to salvation. Okay? Scripture is clear and obvious on the facts necessary to be saved and sanctified. When there seems to be less clarity on a secondary issue, such as 
uh, end times views, uh, maybe some, even some things on some of the spiritual gifts, where there seems to be less clarity on a secondary issue, something not essential for salvation. We're not saying scripture is not clear. We're saying that the doctrine of perspicuity doesn't necessitate that every doctrine be equally clear. Uh, penal substitutionary atonement by Jesus as the Messiah is abundantly clear. Uh, the identity of the sons of God in Genesis 6 is not as clear. Uh, that doesn't threaten the clarity of God's word. It simply means that the more important the doctrine, the more obvious and clear it is. Does that make sense? Okay. Second, the clarity of Scripture doesn't necessitate plain affirmative statement of the doctrine. The Bible never makes a clear affirmative statement of the Trinity, but it is made abundantly clear through the Bible and is therefore considered a major doctrine of our faith. Third, we are dealing with the matter of precision versus accuracy. The clarity of Scripture and the indwelling of the Spirit assure us that any believer can read the verses and have an accurate understanding, though not always easy or immediate. Precision is related to the idea that when we read a verse for the first time, we don't see all of it. We might see it accurately, but we don't see all of it. So we're, we're learning. We're growing. We're seeing how passages fit with other passages. We're deepening in our understanding of the Lord. Um, our knowledge that Christ died for the ungodly can be accurate when you're in junior high. You understand that Jesus of Nazareth died, and that means the sins are paid for. But I understand the depth and beauty of that passage with much greater precision now than I did then. Does that make sense? Okay. Absolutely. The psalmist said that in Psalm 119, right? I prayed almost every week. Open our eyes that we will see wonderful things in your word. Right? He opens up our eyes. Okay, we're going to go all the way down to the end. The end, the end, the end. The Bible under fire. What page are we on? Help me, please, friends. 16? Page 16, the Bible under fire. How do we see the Bible under fire? The Bible... The battle over biblical authority is far from over. It will continue until Christ returns. People are publishing books that question scripture's authority and inspiration and inerrancy, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. Peter ends. Here's what he wrote. The Bible is not reliable and factual in its historical narrative. What the Bible says happened didn't happen. Much of the Old Testament reads like fairy tales. Furthermore, many of its theological descriptions, even about God, and ethical instructions are disturbing, wrong, contradictory, and at times even immoral sorry, typo, immoral and barbaric. Consequently, the Bible is not, I am sorry, I have some typos there. Those are my typos. Um, they're not inerrant, clear, or sufficient, nor should we consider parts of it inspired at all. That was written by a professing believer. Kenton Sparks, in a book that was put out by Erdman's, okay? Don't just think, oh, they publish Christian books. They must be good, okay? Kenton Sparks wrote this. The Bible is primarily a human book, and since it was written by humans, it naturally errs. Historical errors and contradictions are present throughout. For example, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Paul didn't write many apostles, uh, uh, um, epistles, uh, I'm sorry for my typos, uh, epistles bearing his name. The flood and Exodus never happened, etc. But those, these errors are not only historical in nature, but the illo are, are illogical and, and unethical. And as the Bible um uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, I don't know how I got so many typos in this. Um, this is my my own. This is my operator error. Okay, no one else's. I can't blame anyone else for this. But anyway, he says they're sinister and evil. This is his book, Sacred Word, Broken Word, Biblical Authority, and the Dark Side of Scripture. 
printed by Erdmund, okay? So be careful out there, all right? So evangelical Bible critic is an oxymoron. They say the Bible is not inerrant, but nonetheless remains the word of God. Uh-uh. Uh, script, now, skeptics will look at the same Bible problems and conclude the Bible is not the word of God. So they're like, oh, but we're not saying it's not the word of God. Well, yeah, that's what you said, okay? If the Bible errs, it cannot be the authoritative word of God. Matthew Barrett, in the book I was telling you about earlier, God's Word Alone, said this, we cannot buy into the Enlightenment illusion that we can come to Scripture neutral, unbiased, and perfectly objective. No one comes to Scripture neutral. Neutrality is not our goal. Accuracy and precision with the Scriptures is our goal. We come to the Scriptures and allow its own voice to affirm and correct our pre-understanding of what Scripture is and how it should be read. See, you don't, it's like you, you don't read the Scripture, it reads you, okay? It changes you. And, and so that's where we've got to go with it. The self-authenticating nature of Scripture and the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin, oh my goodness, I have so many typos. I am so sorry. John Irwin is a good friend of mine, uh, but John Owen is who I was quoting. Um, so I'm serious. So John Owen and John Calvin both said, Scripture is autopiston from autopistos, meaning trustworthy in and of itself. Scripture is trustworthy in and of itself. So that, that is what we've got to land with and we've got to go with. And so I want to take some time to give you uh, time to look over some of these questions. I've got seven questions for you. Another question here? Well, I was just going to comment that while the Bible may have some history in it, it's not supposed to be to be about you know, sin and how God has redeemed yeah 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 and it's, and it's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword yeah um, no. one quick comment on that last section that self-authenticating um, something I thought was really interesting about that is like the Catholic Church will say and I think we a, a lot of times get twisted up with this that the church is the one who right. gave us scripture. Right. Like we found the you know this writing and this writing, and we compiled it all up, and yeah. there was some council and the canon and mm -hmm. whatever. So yeah, learning that like there's no authority. The scripture doesn't need an authority outside of scripture to tell us what is scripture. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's the old quote. Uh, the scripture is like a lion. Just you don't have to. You don't have to to defend it. Uh, scripture's like a lion. Let it loose, it will defend itself. Yeah, let it be. Let it, let it affect you. Don't, don't, um, you know, don't uh, over-examine uh, what you think is right or wrong. Let it examine your heart over and over again. So, you got seven questions there, and I want you to just break it into a couple groups here and there, and pick whatever you want and discuss it, okay? Or maybe there's another thing you want to discuss based on our topic for tonight. And then in a couple of minutes, I'll, I'll close this. Okay? All right. They say that it's a it's a Greek word. So if it's so I'm just 
if it's their opinion that it's better as much as it is. Was no, it was like the, what they're just saying that tr- scripture is trustworthy in and of itself. They're making a point that the scriptures make about itself. That's all. Right. I'm, I'm, I, to- I totally agree. Yeah. I, I'm skeptical because it's like this is all saying it's their opinion, and I would be super, super excited if there's like a verse or like a place where, yeah, yeah, yeah. where the word scripture is like said also yeah. uses yeah, yeah, yeah. So like yeah. something like that would make. Oh, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, but like even when Jesus said in John 17, 17, your word is true. That's kind of just reading that itself. Your word is true, and the word said it. You know. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Self-authenticating. Okay. Just, it just feels I like, it just feels like that would I can look for it. Seems, sure, sure. Yeah. It just feels like that would be, that would be worth it. That would have more yeah, read than I hear you. Than, anyway. I hear you. Good point. Yes, we got an army here.
Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna close it up here. Let me just say a couple words, and then uh, I'm gonna pray. And if you want to keep talking, that's you're on your own. Um, but the last verse I want to share with you tonight is Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Another another one says, uh, Forever, your Lord, forever, O Lord, your word is is fixed, uh, is settled, in in heaven. So um, it's it's immovable. And then looking forward to September 26th, we're going to talk about God's providence and sovereignty. October 10th, election, reprobation, predestination, foreknowledge. And October, uh, the next one after that, free will and the will of man in salvation and sanctification. So those should be good. 
So let me pray. Basically, and, uh, basically predestination. Pardon me. Basically predestination. Free will. We're gonna look at we're gonna look at uh, election, predestination, foreknowledge okay. before we look at free will. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. That should be fun. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for uh, these that have gathered tonight. Thank you that we have the privilege to do so. Thank you for uh, putting a love for your word in our hearts. Thank you, Lord. We, we love your word. We love you. And we thank you for salvation. We thank you for the shed blood of Christ in our place. And we pray, Lord, for a good night's rest and that we would serve you with all our hearts tomorrow. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I fixed all my typos on my iPad. If you gave me your email, I'll send you the clean notes. I can't stand typos. So I'll send you the, the fixed notes as long as you give me your email. Was it intentional? Was it intentional? No. Right here is wrong? No, it was the whole thing. I mean, it was fantastic. Very egregious. Very egregious.